Well, good morning, hope you're well. Uh, I remember almost eight years ago, uh, my wife came down and told me some news that we were pregnant. And part of the reason I remember, we were actually living at Chicago at the time, and I remember because uh, the Chicago Bears were playing the Green Bay Packers in the, one of the championship games. And so I remember my wife came down and she said to me, hey, Brian, we need to talk. And I said, actually, this isn't a good time. This is the Chicago Bears <laughs> playing the Green Bay Packers. And if you're married, you, you know, your wife kind of has something or your spouse has something. They're like, no, no, we need to talk. I was like, you sure it can't wait till after the game? And she's like, yep. And, uh, and so I actually positioned myself where I could still listen to her and see the TV screen. And so, uh, so all of a sudden she could kind of see that. And so she, uh, she handed me this uh, pregnancy thing. And, uh, and to say that I messed up that moment would be an understatement uh, of that particular thing. And then I said, babe, can we talk about this after? I want to finish the game. Um, I didn't say that. The fact that you'd believe that says something about me <laughs> to you guys. But you know, if you've had that moment when you're a parent where you see that line, it's like everything changes. All it is is a line in that moment. Everything changed that day. I remember I'd never met my son, but I remember it was almost like in that moment. If you're a parent, you understand this. It's like I loved that kid. I cared for that kid. I thought about that kid. I met with dads and I said, how do you be a good dad? I read certain books or at least chapters of certain books uh, of what it was like to be a good dad. I talked with people about this. At that point, if you would have told me uh, it was my son's life or mine. I would have gladly laid down my life for my son. But you know what? Something shifted after I met him. In fact, you ever have those things on your phone where it's like your, your memories pop up? I had this memory that actually popped up this week. And this was one of the pictures that popped up. This is where they come in and take a picture. Isn't that awesome? But here's the thing. This is like Facebook shopped kind of the stuff where, you know, the, and whenever you get a photo, they take like 80 photos. Uh, this was the real life photo that I want you to see. That's, that's black and white. That's actually... <laughs> Brian in real life right there. That is me coming out of the C-section. And can I just say this? I will listen to you, respect you, believe you. But anybody who says to me, childbirth is beautiful, I question everything they say. <laughs> it's like, I remember being in that moment where my wife is giving birth and everyone talks about how beautiful and their C-section, blood, noises, everything. And I remember looking at my wife going, babe, I can't do this. <laughs> my wife is being operated on this table and she literally grabbed my hand and she said, Brian, be strong and courageous in the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's the moment for us. And then they have this moment where it's like they give you this kid, there's no instructions, you're just overwhelmed. It's like for 24 hours, this kid cries and that's the reality of my life right there. But I looked at that photo this week and I thought, you know what, as overwhelming as that moment was, there was this transforming moment when I held my son. If you're a dad, you know what that's like. I remember like, it was like all of a sudden, this love that I had for my son moved from like a concept in my head, an intellectual kind of ascent, where it was like I had this idea about love, and all of a sudden, it's like this became real. It became tangible. My son took on flesh. There was an encounter that transformed my whole experience. And suddenly, it wasn't just this generalized talk about a love that a father has for a son. It was like it was real. It was tangible. And part of the reason I say this to you is that for a lot of us in this room, we know what it's like to be in a space where it's like we say we love God. A lot of us, maybe we grow up around God, we come to church and, and we say, hey, Jesus, I love you. We see songs about how great the Father's love is for us. And we talk about the care of God. Many of us, we sacrifice certain things. We will give money, we will give time. But if we're honest, somewhere it's like the love that we have of God is more of this intellectual ascent where we have these concepts and these ideas about God. But there is a moment for all of us, if you're a Christ follower, where you know that, that God 
moves from this concept or this mental ascent to all of a sudden, it's like Jesus takes on flesh in your life. And it's almost, it's like you have this moment where, you know, when the people encounter God, they, they don't just say, oh, he's great and God is good. They actually become undone. It's like they become undone in the presence of God because it's almost like something shifts where you understand. It's not just the God of your parents. It's not just the God of your grandparents. It's not the God of the heights. It's not the God of us. It is not just the God of Abraham and Isaac. It's the God of Brian. It's the God of Sarah. It's the God of James. It's the God of Kevin. It's the God of Amanda. And all of a sudden, it's like something shifts in you where it's not just like this idea of God's love. It is like you are undone. You want nothing else but to be in the presence of God. Everything has shifted in your life. I love what one scholar says. Some people miss heaven by 18 inches because they have this mental understanding about God, but it does not move to their heart. So what does it look like for the love of God to be transforming in your life? How do we get to this place where God's love has transformed us radically? There are multiple things that we could speak about, but uh, the author John, as we're closing out in the next couple of weeks on this first John series, the author, John, who is uh, called the beloved disciple. He was someone who knew the father heart of God. He knew what it was like not to talk about the concepts of God, but to actually be transformed by it. He's going to speak about a couple of ways, how we today can be transformed by the love of God. So we don't just say we love Jesus, but it actually factors into our whole DNA that we become these new creations in essence, where our desires have shifted where we awaken and we, we see things we've never seen before and we've heard things we've never heard before because we've encountered the presence of God. And I just want to walk through a couple of these that, that John actually speaks about how we know we're transformed by the gospel and by the love of God. The first is this. The way that you know you're transformed by the love of God is you understand the love of God makes you complete. It makes you whole. It fills you up. What that means is that if you have Jesus, you understand that you have everything, that you have this supernatural peace, this supernatural joy, this supernatural life, but there's a problem with this life and this love that transforms us. You know, the other day I took my, my three kids, my seven-year-old son and my two twin girls that are three, I took them to Costco because I wanted to raise them up in the ways of Jesus. And so I took them to this holy place, Costco, and literally we're, we're walking around, we do our shopping and then we decide we're going to go to the food court area. And so we get our food. And uh, all of a sudden, it's like my daughter, Selah, drops her fork on the ground. And I was going to go get her fork, but she wanted to pick out her particular fork. And so I took Selah, and it's probably not a great parental move, but I looked at my seven-year-old son, and I said, hey, will you watch your three-year-old sister? <laughs> and so I literally go, and I don't think much of it. I'm gone for maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds at tops. I grab this fork, or Selah grabs this fork. I turn around, and literally, uh, Gray's gone. She's just gone. And my first thought is, thank you, Jesus, that Steph is not here to witness this moment. <laughs> the second thought is, where's my daughter? And so I look across the room and she is literally on the other side of Costco. I don't even know how she got there that quick. And so I start sprinting after her. And at first, if you ever watch a kid do this when they get lost or when they're going around, at first it's real fun to them because they're running around. And then all of a sudden she sees all these strangers and so she realizes it's not safe and she can't find dad. She can't find her siblings. So she starts crying. And because I'm not that amazing of a parent, I thought, you know what? You made me suffer. I'm going to make you suffer. So I stopped running and I walked very briskly. And I delayed that thing for about 10 seconds. Not the way of Jesus, but it's the way of Brian, all right? And so literally, she's like crying. I pick her up and I turn around. And you can't make this stuff up. I pick her up and my other kids are gone. So I just left them at Costco. They're still there. I don't know where they are. I was just done. Any parent knows, especially of a young kid, 
You have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, everyone knows you better watch that kid like a hawk. You, you better be locked in. You better be fixed on that kid. In fact, every parent knows of a young kid. When it's quiet, it's not good. Every parent knows that above all else, you better guard your kid because in a moment they'll be lost and gone. And here's the reason I tell you this. Not every Christian knows this. If you do not fix your eyes, if you do not lock your eyes on Jesus, if you do not make him the primary target and the focus of your life, if you do not guard your heart above all else, if you aren't careful in a moment, you will lose what's most important. You will lose your passion, and your love for Jesus. And can I just say, maybe you're in this room because it's happened to me. There are moments where it's like I wake up and all of a sudden it is like my passion for Jesus has just gone and I wonder what happened. It's not that I don't have an intellectual love for Jesus. It's not that I don't attend church. It's not that I don't read the Bible, but something has shifted. I've gotten my eyes off Jesus. Something has captured my heart. And honestly, what happens is after a while, it's like my heart is divided. And maybe you're in this place right now where you know you love Jesus, but it's not that transforming kind of love where you can say, I want him above anything else. And if I have Jesus, I have everything. And the good news is the invitation it's to understand, to guard your heart and to understand what you have in Jesus. To get your eyes back on him, fixed on him. I love what 1 John 4, 12 says. It says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That word complete literally means to lack nothing, to be filled to overflowing. What that means is, is that this is not a future tense thing. I think so many times we talk about the presence of God like it is future tense. One day when you get to heaven, one day when you get these things figured out, one day when the health problems are solved, this is not future tense, this is present tense. Right now in this moment in Richardson, Texas, you are complete, you lack no spiritual gift, you have every spiritual blessing, you have the authority of God, you have the love of God. If you're in Jesus, you have real power, you have real life, you can have real peace in this moment. Not one day when you get to be with Jesus, but in this present moment, you are complete, filled up, lacking no good thing. Do you believe that? Or somewhere, if you're like me, what happens is we say those things, but our eyes are fixed on something else. And there is a real kingdom and there's a real king, Jesus is his name. And if you repent, which means if you just keep your eyes locked on him, if you fix your eyes on him and you believe in him, and if you don't know him today, the Bible is very clear. You don't have to do some long methodical process. It's not like going to the spiritual DMV. It is simply repenting and turning your focus towards him. There's a real king, but the Bible also says there's another kingdom that we don't speak about. And it is, is it a kingdom of demonic activity where there is a real enemy that what he wants to do, the Bible says, is still kill and destroy the very life of God in you. And what he is, the Bible says, he's the father of lies. And what that means is he gets you to get your eyes off of Jesus and just focus on something else in this world so that suddenly you believe the lie that if you don't have this thing or if all you have is Jesus, it's not enough. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They had the very presence of God, but you know what? This thing is something that if I don't have that, I'm missing out. And suddenly what happened is it's not that they renounced Jesus, but somewhere that transforming love as they got their eyes off Jesus, something shifted in them. It happens all throughout the Bible. It happens with all of us. In fact, there's a man in the Bible named Solomon. Wisest man, the Bible says, that's ever walked the face of this earth. He had every joy, pleasure, rich that you could have in this world. The Bible says he was the wisest man. The Bible said that he had all the glory, he built incredible buildings. There were monuments that he had done, works of art that he had created. Everyone knew his name. He had all the women, all the pleasure. 
He had all the popularity. He had everything. And yet he writes this book in Ecclesiastes where he basically says that even though he had it all, his life was meaningless because somewhere he'd gotten his eyes off God and something had shifted. And what I found interesting, the reason I share this is that I noticed something that at the very end of Ecclesiastes, the last chapter, Solomon actually writes this verse. Listen to what it says. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. So here you have this man who is literally uh, at the end of his life. And what does he do? He writes young people. And what does he say? He says, you need to fix your eyes on God. You need to focus on him because if you aren't careful, you will spend your life focused and fixed on other things. You'll get to the end of your life and you'll realize those things don't satisfy. And it hit me when I was reading this, that for most of Solomon's life, he didn't think the issue was with what he was actually looking at or what he was focused on. He just didn't think he had traveled that road far enough. Think about it like this. Probably for Solomon, most of his life, the issue was not with success. He just didn't have enough success. He needed more. For Solomon, the issue probably for the first part of his life wasn't money. He just needed more money. He needed more success. He needed more pleasure. For some of us, we, we, we think that we're not fixed on the wrong thing. We just don't have enough of that thing. The issue is not with recognition. I just haven't got recognized by the right people. The issue is not with comfort or riches or possessions. I just don't have enough of those things. And Solomon at the end of his life basically writes and says, do not spend your life with your eyes off Jesus, focused on something else with a divided heart. It cannot satisfy because you aren't made for this world. You're made for a person and his name is Jesus. You know, the definition of the kingdom, here, let me just say this. One of the ways you can know if you're where you need to be with Jesus is if you have this mantra of lacking or not enough. Like the moniker of the world is not enough, never enough, you're lacking. The way of the kingdom is complete. You know, we all know what it's like to, to think about what you don't have. Like I don't have this, I don't have that. The other day I caught myself, literally, I was at the beach with my, with my siblings or my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my wife, my kids, and I was looking at my brother-in-law who played college football or high school football, did all those things, and he's got a six-pack. And I'm just watching him going, I don't have a six-pack. And literally, as I say that, I look down, I'm, I'm eating Cheetos and I have a Coke in my hand. <laughs> I've done nothing to work towards a six-pack. But it's like, I want a six-pack in that moment. I'm aware of what I don't have. Most of us spend our lives more aware of what we don't have than what we have in Jesus. I don't have the same opportunities as this person. I don't have the same talent. I don't have the same joy. I don't have the same spouse. I don't have the same kids. I don't have the same resources. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. What happens is in that moment, you have got your eyes off of Jesus and you've got your eyes on this world and you are comparing. And the problem is you can have all those things and you can get more of those things and you get a six pack, you can do all these things, you can get the body you want and you'll still be empty. Why? Because you're not made for the things of this world. The only thing that can make you complete right now is the presence of Jesus. Let me just say this. Let's just unpack this a bit. That means you can be here right now, not one day in heaven, not future tense, but right now in Richardson, Texas, and you can be disappointed with your job and you can be complete. You'd be filled up right now in the presence of Jesus, real joy, real life, real purpose. What that means is you can be at a season in your life where you go, you know what? I didn't accomplish all that I thought I would at this age. And I'm a little disappointed, but you know what? I am still complete in Jesus in this moment, not future tense or when you get that job or when you get those accolades right now in Richardson, Texas, you can be complete this morning. Filled up with the power, the glory, the authority of God in your life. 
What that means is you can be facing health stuff, you can be disappointed, you can be facing all these things in your life, but in this moment, you can be complete because of who Jesus is in this moment. That's the invitation. People who are transformed and don't just have a mental assent or an idea of God, they go, you know what? If I have Jesus, I really do have everything. Paul says, you know what? I've learned the secret of being content. You can give me all the problems of this world or you can give me all the riches and glories, but you know what? It's Jesus or nothing. I'm complete in him. And what we've done is we've made the great reversal. And that's part of the reason most of us struggle with completeness. We basically say for me to live is gain and to die is Christ, meaning that I just want to extract as much stuff from this world right now, and then one day I'll go be with Jesus, and then I can be happy. And that's not the way of Paul. The way of Paul is, you know what? Right now, for me to live is Christ. That's all I need. I'm complete, and I'm filled up with him. Get your eyes, if you're in a place where you're not seeing Jesus clear, just get your eyes back on him. Fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of your faith. That's the first thing. People who are transformed by the love of God, they know they're complete in him. But the second thing is this. There is real, real peace for those who've been transformed by the love of God. Overwhelming peace even. Overwhelming peace in the presence of God. Listen to this. I love this verse, 1 John 4, 17 through 18. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Can I just say this? Let me speak for myself. I don't know where you are in this, but I I find there is a razor thin edge between faith and doubt in my life. Like there there is a rate, like I never resonate with people who say they have no fears or doubts or worries ever. That's just not me. And if that's you, then blessings to you. That's just never been my story. I honestly feel like Peter a lot of times, not in the, I'm a spiritual giant sense, but you ever watch his life? It's like one second he is walking on water, the next second he's sinking. One second he's saying, Jesus, I'll never deny you. And he's standing up in Acts chapter two with boldness at Pentecost. The next second he's intimidated by a high school girl, completely walking away from his faith. Well, one second he's going, Jesus, if everyone turns away from you, I'll follow you. Next second he's back fishing. It's like there is a razor thin edge between faith and doubt. But one of the things that has hit me in my life is that my confidence in this present moment, how I know I can be complete and how, as this verse says, I know I can stand before God in this judgment that all of us will face. The reason I can have a future confidence and a present confidence is because of the past action of Jesus Christ on the cross. So what that means is this, that faith in many ways is not about my faithfulness to God. It's about his faithfulness to me. That's the problem that so many of us have. That's why we doubt all the time is because we think, you know what? Like one second I'm walking on water, the next second I'm sinking, something's wrong with my faith. And we failed to see that the issue is never with your faith. It's never about you. It's always about him. It's not about how faithful you are. It's about how faithful he is to you. And what we need to do is start reciting the promises. We need to go back to the Bible. He who began a good work in you will see it through. Not you and your own strength and your spiritual determination and your spiritual adrenaline. He who began that good work, he is too faithful even when you're not. And so we have this confidence in the past action. That's what John's saying is my confidence isn't in myself and my ability to love. My confidence is in the name of Jesus. And you think about this past action that you can sing about this, but then you got to make sure it moves from here to there. The past action that Jesus didn't just you know, take all of the sin, death, despair, sickness, and give it to us. He took it upon himself and he was murdered, brutally murdered. He was buried in the dirt. 
But the Bible says that, that the grave could not hold him down, that death could not hold him down, that sin and death and sickness and despair and the hopelessness of the world, it couldn't hold him down, it couldn't cling to him. And so what he says to you this morning is if you're in me and it couldn't cling to me, then it can't cling to you. Because it's not about your faithfulness, it's about the past action of Jesus that gives me confidence. So stop trusting your feelings and what you feel this morning. Get your eyes off of what you feel in this world. Get your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. That's how you have peace. And let me just say this about peace because a lot of times if you're anything like me, I grew up and I, I have friends who, you know, in different camps that, you know, sometimes I felt like for years, that faith and peace was like pretending mountains don't exist, right? Like, it's like, if I just don't go to the doctor and I don't think about that pain or that cancer or that death or that other thing, if I don't think about where the bank account is and I pretend that it's not there, then all of a sudden, like, it will go away and that's not faith. Faith does not deny that there is demonic activity and evil and brokenness in the world. What faith says is there's a greater force than that evil and demonic stuff in the world. And so in essence, what happens is you don't just go, you know what? And like pretend almost like with this spiritual aura, you go, you know what? I see this mountain in front of me, but somehow I'm going to ask that God would open my eyes to the greater reality of the presence and the power of God. That yes, there are demonic forces. There is evil. And the problem in culture sometimes is we call what's good evil and what's evil good. There is problems. But it's saying, you know what? Despite that, He's still faithful. He's still good. There is still a greater force going on. In fact, let me just say this. this is probably, if you need encouragement, if you're facing a mountain in your life, let me just encourage you. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 6 today. It's probably one of my favorite passages in the Bible. 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a story of this man named uh, Elisha. Elisha is uh, the man of God. He is actually the prophet for Israel. What happens is Israel at this time in 2 Kings 6, they're at war with the king of Syria. And so what happens is the king of Syria, he has these battle strategies, he has these plans. And so what happens is he decides that he's going to attack Israel or, or set a trap here. All of a sudden, whenever he sets a trap, it's like Israel knows what he's doing. And so they do the opposite. If he tries to trap them in this valley, they go to the opposite valley. And all of a sudden, the Bible says in 2 Kings 6, this king of Syria believes he has a traitor in his presence. And so he starts talking to his army. He starts talking to his men saying, someone is giving the enemy, Israel, our position. And one of the men says, you know what? It's not us. There's a man of God named Elisha. And he prays and he hears from God and God is actually directing his path. Whatever you plan, Elisha hears from God to do the opposite. And so this king of Syria decides that he's gonna no longer focus on the entire army of Israel. He's gonna focus on one man, Elisha. And so this story goes that literally the king of Syria surrounds Elijah and the prophets on one of these mountains. And listen to what it says in 2 Kings 6, 15 through 17, when the servant, this is Elijah's servant. It says, when the servant of the man of God got up, went out early the next morning, an army of horses with chariots surrounded the city. Now you think about it, this guy probably went to get water. All of a sudden he walks out and there's an entire army. I mean, you talk about a bad day right there. And then he says, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? There's not enough emotion on planet earth to get that, oh no, my Lord. I mean, this is terror and fear. What shall we do? The servant asked. Listen to Elijah. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha prayed. Notice this. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire, which was the army of God 
all around Elisha. What mountain are you facing this morning? Faith is not pretending that those mountains don't exist. It's just seeing a greater reality, which is the presence of Jesus. Faith is not acting like there's not a mountain of cancer. In fact, in this very last service, as I was preaching, a man came up to me after and he said, I needed that. He said, a few years ago, I lost my spouse. He said, I'm facing this mountain of sadness. And he said, for the first portion of her death, I, I had my eyes fixed on Jesus, but somewhere I got my eyes off Jesus. And I've lost this sense of hope. And the invitation is not to pretend that death and sickness and sadness doesn't exist. The invitation is to understand that there is a God who's greater in the midst of all those things and who can give you peace, not one day when you go to heaven, but right now in this moment in Richardson, Texas. That's who God is. And what happens for many of us, if I could just be so blunt, if you're anything like me, is we're almost spiritual atheists. We believe God holds the whole world in his hands, but he doesn't hold my marriage. We believe God holds the whole world in his hand, but he doesn't hold my finances. We believe God holds the whole world in his hands, but he, but he doesn't hold my faith and he doesn't hold my doubt. And he doesn't hold my anxiety. And the invitation in this moment is to wake up and not to dismiss those things. It's just to see the greater reality, which is the presence of Jesus. And can I just encourage you how to have peace in this season? One of the ways that you do that is, you know, the storyline of the Bible, you know, the storyline of the Bible. Let me just give you this. This was probably one of the most Rich things I read these last couple weeks that stirred me up. But you know, in Acts chapter eight, verse one, the, the presence of God had been moving up until Acts chapter eight, verse one. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter eight, verse one. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all, the, and, except, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So you think about this. The church is experiencing moves of God, miracles, power, provision. God is breaking out. Then in Acts eight, one, everything shifts. And suddenly people are hopeless. God, we're following you. God, we're serving you. Now there's a mountain of death and persecution and a government that is actually restricting the move of God. So all of a sudden people are going, well, what's the deal? But the reason that some people had hope is they interpreted Acts chapter eight, verse one in light of Acts chapter one, verse eight. With this in mind, look at this verse. Look how rich this is. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Notice this, first in Jerusalem but then in all of Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Do you understand that part of the reason Acts chapter eight, verse one was happening so it could fulfill Acts chapter one, verse eight? The way that the gospel moved forward was actually this persecution, meaning that there was a mountain that these people were facing, but there was a greater storyline of what God was doing in the middle of that mountain, in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that hopelessness, which means this. People ask me all the time, are you worried about the future of the church? There's more just pain and dismiss. I mean, Christians more than ever are hopeless. I mean, you could just talk to any Christian. Maybe you're in this room and you're hopeless because you see the cultural moment that we're in and you see that more than ever people are falling away and people ask me this, no joke. They'll say, how do you feel? And I will tell you this, I'm not 80 or 95% hopeful. I'm 100% hopeful in the future of the church that God will bring revival and breakthrough. And the reason I'm hopeful is because I know the storyline of the Bible. When things seem to be the darkest in culture and society, when it seems like people are falling away, God's just almost bringing back the tide to pour out revival and breakthrough in the world that we live in. And I want to be one of those Christians who's going, you know what? Even if no one else believes it, I've seen it happen in my own life. You've seen it happen in your life. 
I, I can be someone in the middle of cultural moments that has overwhelming peace. Not just one day when I get to heaven, right now in this moment, you can experience the overwhelming peace presence of God. That's how you know you've been transformed. Doesn't mean that you don't have mountains of pain and sickness and sadness. It just means something shifted in your psyche. Do you know, have your eyes turned away from Jesus? If they have, it's not a complex process. Get your eyes back on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Let me say this in closing. Final point is this. When you know you've been transformed by the love of God, it's not just for you. You understand that God's love is for other people. It's for the sake of other people. You, you cannot have the love of God transform you and then almost turn inward and monastic. You always respond and you just love people. Listen to what it says, John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this new command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. I preached a whole sermon on this two weeks ago, so I'm not gonna unpack this, but I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you, if, you didn't get to check, if you didn't get to hear that. But I really believe that once God love gets in you, it always moves through you. Christianity is all about love and you cannot have love without others. It has always been confusing to me when people will say things like, you know what, I, I love Jesus, but I've been burned by people in the church and so I no longer wanna to go to church or no longer wanna connect. Can I just say, if that's you and your faith turns you inward, it's not the faith of Jesus. Jesus had disciples that constantly missed the mark. Even the point where he's being crucified, his disciples are rebuking him going, no, no, Jesus, you're not gonna die. Like they always miss, one wasn't even a Christian. And yet, what is he doing? He's washing disciples' feet. He's caring. He's looking for the woman at the well. His faith always turned him outward. If my faith turns me inward, it's not the way of transformation. And can I just say this, just on this one point, what I fear a little bit in culture and society is somewhere Christians have gone off after the justice issues of God. You know what I'm talking about? It's like we've been so passionate about bringing God back into the government and you know, political parties and what's going on with culture and society and police and racism and all these things are beautiful things. But can I just say, if your justice of God doesn't look like the heart of God, it's not the way of God. Because what happens is you have people speaking about peace and justice and yet they're angered and they're bitter and they're judgmental. But you have people talking about what we need in the government and culture and society, and yet it's like somewhere their heart has lost the hope and the love of Jesus, where it's like we don't believe the best in one another. And what happens is true love transforms me in such a way where I don't come just to get my needs met, even on Sunday. I come in such a way to build you up, to encourage you. Paul said, I long to see you that I might encourage you and build you up, not so that I can get my needs met. Like that's a challenging thing at its core. And I realize how much the Holy Spirit has to work in my life to get me to this place where I love and I serve and I'm transformed in that. And as we close, if you would, I just thought what a way to close out than just to have a time of communion. And what I wanna do is as we close out, it'll be done in just a couple of minutes, but I just thought as we close out, what a gift to be reminded that the way that we experience this transforming love of God is because of his mercy and kindness, not because of our actions. So Jesus did the unthinkable. He took some common household items, some bread and some wine, and thousands of years ago, a thousand years later rather, we still remember and celebrate what this means for us. And first, Jesus took this bread, and you can take that out right now. And he took this bread as a symbol 
of his body that was going to be broken. And before you take this, let me just remind you that, that this body, the reason that we have faith and life in God is not because of something we can do. It's because of God's faithfulness to us. Your faith is not about your faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness to you. That's why you can believe. That's why you can be complete. That's why you can be confident. So this morning, you take this remembering that it's not how you feel. It's not how you acted last night. It's his great love and mercy that his body was shed for you and his blood was spilled so that you could have life. Take and eat. And then Jesus much to the horror of the angels, took this cup, which represented his blood. And he poured this out as a symbol of his blood that would be shed. And let me just say this, it was not Jesus, it was not the nails in Jesus' hands and feet that kept him on the cross, it was his love for you. And so it's his kindness, it's his love that makes you right. And so what I want you to do right now before you take this, is if there is something in your life that you go, you know what, I've got this mountain that I'm facing. I've got this mountain of worry, doubt, or fear. I've got this idol in my life that is, that is getting my eyes off Jesus. Can I just say this? One of the things that hit me the other day is that most of us want to, we want to actually go to the cross, but we don't want to climb on it. We, we want to go to the cross and get forgiveness. We want the blood, we want the life, but we don't want to get on it. We don't want to die to ourselves, but that's the invitation. The way that you get the life of Jesus is that you lay those things down that are competing with the life of Jesus. And so you surrender those things. So if there's worry or doubt or fear, or there's an idol or somewhere you have gotten your eyes fixed on something else, just in the quickness of this moment, I want you right now, before you take this, just to imagine yourself laying that thing at the feet of Jesus on the cross and dying that. Take just a moment right now. And as we get our eyes back on Jesus in this moment, we are reminded there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Take, drink. As we close out, we have one more week of First John. Can I just encourage you? Whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you, get your eyes on him this week. Like fix your eyes on him. I give this challenge every single week. I'm doing it for a month. You know, get off of Facebook, if that's stressing you out and getting your eyes off Jesus, I call it the seventh layer of hell, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but like, I've just never seen anybody who goes, you know what, my eyes aren't fixed on Jesus and I just feel better from reading all the news reports and all the stuff going on. Just, can I just encourage you, take a season and meditate on the word of the Lord. Fill your mind with the things of God. And I just try it for a week and I promise you this, you will come back and you will say something shifted in me. 
Because what happens is you have fixed your eyes on what you are made for, the author and perfecter of your faith. If you don't know Jesus, can I just encourage you? We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. If you want to give your resources, if you came ready to give, you can give those on your way out. If you want prayer, whatever it is, just we would love to meet you in that space. But can I just encourage you as a church, let's be people who seek the face of Jesus this week and see what he does in our lives as we fix our eyes and guard our hearts on him. You guys have an amazing, amazing day. We love you. Uh, Blessings. May God's face shine upon you. Have a wonderful Sunday.